Hi, it's Brendan here. Before we kick off with my interview with David Goodhart, I want to tell you about Spiked Supporters, our online hub for regular donors complete with exclusive perks. From now on, those who give £5 or more a month or £50 or more a year will be able to comment on articles, get free and discounted tickets to live events, get a discount on all items in our shop and bookmark articles as you browse in your very own Spiked Supporters account. This is all our way of saying thank you to all of you who fund our work. Spiked is completely free, and yet you still hand over your hard-earned cash to make sure that anyone, anywhere can read us. We're really grateful for that. Regular donors who already give £5 or more a month or £50 or more a year are already eligible to join Spike supporters. And if you don't give to Spike yet, now is the perfect time. Just go to spiked-online.com slash supporters to set up your donation and set up your Spike supporters account. Thank you all from everyone at Spiked. And now on with the show. The parties of the left have become overwhelmingly graduate dominated amongst their activists, their MPs. They've all had a relatively similar experience. And I think that's weakened them as a political force. The two main political parties have swapped in this respect, actually. <laughs> you know, university used to be for rich people. So the Tory party would have many more graduates than the Labour party. But actually one of the advantages to the Tory party, I think amongst its membership, is less graduate dominated. Absurd though it seems, they're actually sort of closer to the pulse of the country because they haven't gone through this politicisation the university invariably produces. Hello and welcome to The Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill. This is a podcast in which an esteemed guest joins me to talk about the big ideas, the bad ideas, the problems and the controversies of life in the early 21st century. In this episode, I am delighted to be joined by David Goodhart. David is a journalist, commentator and author. He founded Prospect magazine in the UK and he was director of the think tank Demos. He currently works at Policy Exchange. David has made a name for himself as a contrarian liberal thinker, especially on the issues of immigration and diversity. He is the author of The British Dream, Successes and Failures of Postwar Immigration, and The Road to Somewhere, The Populist Revolt and the Future of Politics. His most recent book is Head, Hand, Heart, The Struggle for Dignity and Status in the 21st Century. David, there's lots I want to ask you about, but the f- I want to kick off by talking about your latest book, which has been out for a while, Head, Hand and Heart, The Struggle for Dignity and Status in the 21st Century in which you essentially argue that we there is a dominant cognitive elite which rewards and values people who work with their heads far more than people who work with their hands and their hearts. And this has given rise to a pretty warped society, a warped value system, and a sense of alienation among large sections of, of our communities. So f- for listeners who haven't yet read your book, but obviously should, could you just give a brief overview of what you mean by those three categories of head, hand and heart and what you think has happened to them in recent times? Yeah, the meaning is in the title, as you say. I mean, uh, head, hand, heart. I'm looking at um, uh, this is really the, the kind of second book in a, in a, in a series. Mm. The, my first book, uh, The Road to Somewhere, uh, about the new political tribes that I, I coined the phrases anywhere and somewhere for uh, the different or two different value groups in Britain, divided uh, amongst other things by educational status, and and this book 
burrows down deeper into that educational divide. But, I mean, head, hand and heart is obviously a kind of artificial distinction in some ways. Everything we do is a combination of the kind of cognitive and the emotional and the embodied. But but nonetheless, you can broadly speaking look at a labour market and see uh, areas, certain categories of jobs that are primarily about manipulating information in various different ways, um, the, the, the cognitive jobs tend to be dominated by graduates. Then there are jobs that may require more specific vocational type qualifications. You know, technicians, IT technicians um, would have been skilled manual workers in the old days, fewer of them these days. Skills, the skilled trades, plumbers, electricians, and so on. A lot of those, a lot of those jobs classified these days as the kind of missing middle, particularly in this mm-hmm. country, because we've spent, sent so many people to university and have uh, and have rather historically abandoned those kind of higher vocational qualifications. And then the, the heart category is referring more to caring occupations, I mean, both, both in kind of education and health, uh, uh, occupations that require a degree of emotional intelligence, to be a patient, I mean, you know, many of the kinds of things actually that we associate with being a parent in some ways. Mm. Um, you know, the responsibility of care, or you know, a parent, or a primary school teacher, um, or more obviously a nurse, I guess. Or, or a, but obviously, uh, I mean, one of the criticisms, rather one of the rather annoying criticisms made of the book, because actually I do say it several times in the book, is that I was uh, I, I was creating these artificial distinctions, and and almost all human actions, let alone jobs are a mixture of the three obviously mm-hmm. <laughs> um nonetheless it is worth emphasizing that i mean you know perhaps one of the kind of almost model jobs of the future is is a dementia is unfortunately a dementia nurse to be a dementia nurse you're going to um you don't necessarily need a degree um although probably many dementia nurses in the future will have degrees but you're certainly going to have ha- have to have studied this illness this appalling illness in considerable detail and, and understand how it operates. But you're, you're going to need to combine that sort of uh, academic book-based knowledge with, with the, you know, with the, the patience and, and care of a, of a, of a loving parent or, or, or a really good nurse. So, so we're going to get all sorts of odd combinations between these categories. But, and, and my basic argument is that, that, I mean, the first part of the argument is really rather an obvious one. I mean, you know, the whole, sections of labor market economics um, underline it that we've had this great return to qualification we've had mm. this this great increase in the proportion of people who have been encouraged to develop their cognitive skills you know the people who have passed exams at school have gone to more or less good universities have had more or less successful professional cognitive careers and that's become i argue you know too much the kind of gold standard of human esteem mm particularly in the last 30 or 40 years. Uh, and moreover, that, that it's been associated with a kind of single ladder to a successful life, that, you know, that ladder is into a, a good university. And I think a lot of people, as you rightly said in your brief introduction, I think a lot of people feel that their own contributions have been devalued. Mm. Uh, and they have literally been devalued. Mm. I mean, as you've, uh, you know, it's, a, it's one of the kind of laws of labor market economics in recent decades, that this higher return to qualification. And um, that's obviously been an incentive for more and more people, even people who are not actually particularly academically able to, to, to try and climb that ladder. Obviously, you know, the better off you are, the more your parents come from that sort of background, the easier it is for you to, to climb the ladder. 
and, and people from that background, I mean, people from a variety of social backgrounds, although obviously biased, as in so many other respects, towards the middle and upper middle class, so many people from those backgrounds who have gone, have got onto that treadmill and have gone, in, gone into um, academic uh, universities, have do- completely dominated our, our cultural life, our political life, our economic life for the last two generations, hmm. uh, one might say. And that group, and this is where the book perhaps overlaps a bit with the, with my previous book. That 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 group tends to have certain biases. Mm. I mean, they're perfectly decent biases, mm. but they are biases. I mean, it's, I mean, <laughs> I, you know, anywhere's a you know the anywhere priorities for uh, you know openness, uh, autonomy, mobility, particularly in this country because because our universities are over, overwhelmingly residential universities. So people going to university often join a whole new class. I mean, you know, they they uproot themselves from their from their town, from their family, from their friends, and 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 join it's almost sort of you know like the old monastic system, and indeed it it stems from the traditions of Oxford and Cambridge, which were kind of monastic institutions originally. That's a very useful overview of what the book is about. Very good description of it, and I'll prompt you on further with another question. In that case, so the, what you do very well in the book, you describe very well the way in in which you understand the um, differing values that are attached in contemporary society to those who are primarily cognitive in what they do. As you say, there is a mix of head, hand and heart in pretty much every job. Um, But those who are primarily cognitive, not only are they valued more in terms of the esteem that is attached to them, the, the way in which they're talked about in political circles and media circles, but also in terms of their pay. So you describe how the pay of, for example, a public relations manager has risen quite a lot over the past few decades, whereas the pay of a bus driver, which is an issue close to my heart because my dad was a bus driver when he first came to this country 50 years ago, their pay has risen by a much smaller amount. You give a very tangible overview of how this hierarchy has been created. But I want to ask you how you think this has come about, how you think we have come to be in a society that values certain forms of work and contributions more than others. So is it down to deindustrialization and the fact we live in a post-manufacturing world to a certain extent, and therefore the value that was attached to working men and working women in the past has changed? Or do you think there's a more conscious tribal view which says that we are the good people we are the clever people because we run society we are the experts and you guys you you know you're important you do good work but you're not as important as us so how would where would you put the dynamic in terms of how this shift has come about well i think it's always been there i mean what's changed in the last 30 or 40 years is it's been sort of massified you know you go back i mean that you know the cognitive has always been elevated above the physical you might say i mean in you know go back to plato i mean christianity reinforced it in many ways you know that the, the physical is is corrupt and inconstant and that the purity mm. of the spirit and the mind and uh, and all of that and then there's just the sort of more basic you know the higher up the higher up the the, the social scale you, you know go back 100 years or 200 years you know the the people that did the mental work and, and took the decisions, you know, were were the elite, were the privileged people. I mean, you know, the the um, you know, all the way down to the kind of distinctions between, you know, the office and the and the shop floor. I mean, you know, white collar and blue collar. And so a lot of this is just, in a way, sort of stating the obvious. But what changed, I think, you know, w- with the demise of of, of mass 
industrial societies and, and, and manufacturing being 30 or 40% of an economy was that, you know, the, the sort of cognitive values and, and sort of cognitive skills spread out from a small elite to a kind of mass elite, if you like, to, you know, 30, 40% of the population, yeah. you know, now half of all school leavers, more or less, uh, a bit less, actually half, nearly half of all school leavers go, go to university. And obviously, you get diminishing returns. You know, this is well. We can come on to this. Um, I mean, I think you know one of my arguments. And I think perhaps the more original part of the argument is that we've now reached what I call peak head. But, mm. but we can come on to that in a minute. Um, I think another reason why the, the kind of cognitive has swept all before it um, is, is partly because it's drawing on those traditions that I just mentioned. And also, of course, you know, some of the most important jobs genuinely are the cognitive jobs. I mean, you know, someone who designs a house or you know, invents a COVID vaccine, you know, should be more respected and better paid than a, than someone who delivers letters or cleans offices. I mean, you know, we don't want to be crazily egalitarian about this. Um, mm. But I think another factor is that um, cognitive ability is apparently, anyway, easy to measure. And many other kinds of ability, you know, e- emotional intelligence, emotional ability, if you like, or you know other forms of intelligence i mean a, a sort of practical intelligence is 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 harder to measure and you know to, to, you know writing things on pieces of paper dealing with you know essentially kind of pattern recognition cognitive intelligence is you know in the kind of form of, of the iq test and its various offshoots appears to be fair it, it appears to be easy to measure and it appears to be fair you know everybody reads the same biology textbook we all sit an exam you know some of us answer the questions better than others and that that produces a simple hierarchy of of ability in 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 biology as indeed it does i mean but you know other forms of intelligence and aptitude are much harder to capture um so i think that has certainly contributed to this sort of this gulf in in status mm. i think this is particularly an issue in this country partly because of the his, historic undervalue or rather we, we've we've had a tradition that very strongly valued the practical and uh, technical and vocational education it's it's always been in a bit of a tussle with the more kind of academic traditions i mean i, I describe some of this in my book mm. you know and and we've constantly been comparing ourselves to germany back back to the 1860s and the 1870s there's that period when Germany was overtaking us in some ways in the technologies of the second industrial revolution at the end of the 19th century. I think chemical dye stuffs was the, was the great example. And, and there was a sort of pushback against this kind of Oxbridge academic tradition. Um, but it's essentially, I mean, the, the Oxbridge academic tradition has sort of essentially won. Um, and one of the ways that it won, well, very important ways that it won, I mean, our university sector remained absolutely tiny, even compared to other developed countries until and, until the 19. 60s and 70s really with the with the robbins report um mm. and one of the reasons the oxbridge tradition or one of the or evidence for it winning was the fact that those universities no one really seemed to give much of a second thought to the fact that they but those universities were overwhelmingly residential universities boarding universities you like the kind of boarding school tradition or, or perhaps in this case more accurately the kind of oxbridge tradition of you know being a young scholar and and going to Oxford or Cambridge and living there became the tradition for the whole system. There, there had been an alternative system there. We had the red brick universities in the industrial towns in the late 19th century developing. They tended to be, tended not to be residential universities, 
they tended to be for local people. But that that tradition got sort of defeated, if you like, by the Oxbridge tradition, which yeah. uh, which was in place in the Robbins report. And there's another thing too, which is that, and I think this it, it, the the the, the, rap, the disappearance, particularly in recent decades, the very rapid more rapid than most other industrial countries disappearance of industry of manufacturing industry mm-hmm. means that we've lost the, the sort of mutual respect i think this is you know, one of the one of the advantages that germany has over it one of the reasons why these the things that i'm talking about apply to all rich countries really but they apply a bit less to some of the germanic countries partly because they have a, they have a very good alternative source of status you know if you're not you're not doing the academic thing you're not going to university you have the alternative and still about 50 percent of school leavers in germany do a, a, a formal proper three year two and a half three year um apprenticeship mm. and the fact that they've hung on to i mean they you know industry manufacturing industry is still 18 20 percent of german gdp whereas it's nine or ten percent here and that that requires a greater mutual respect as it were between the academic yeah. between the abstract abstract intelligence and practical intelligence, to put it crudely. On that issue that you've raised there about the role of universities and what's happened with the universities in the UK, I mean, the extraordinary thing that's happened is so many more people now go to university than did in the past. And this has, you know, it was celebrated as a wonderful thing, you know, the fact that so many young people can go to university. There have been questions asked asked about it over the past couple of decades. Do they all have to go to university? Couldn't they be doing something else? You have this extraordinary statistic in your book where you say that in the late 1970s in Sheffield, there were 45,000 steel workers and 4,000 students. And then if you fast forward 40 years, there were 5,000 steel workers and 60,000 students. And it's a very good snapshot of a huge epoch-defining shift that has taken place. So how important do you think, in terms of the rise of this cognitive elite and the differing values we give to individuals and the work that they do, how important do you think the explosion of university entrances was? And what would you say to those people who might say to someone like you or someone like me, uh, you know, if you don't want working class people going to university as much as they currently are, that's because you don't think they're cut out for that kind of life. What, how would you how would you respond to those kinds of comments? Uh, I would respond to it by saying lots of upper class people are not cut out for that kind of life <laughs> either. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think the social mobility aspect of higher education is obviously one of the good things about it. Um, we want the but, you know, the, the people who are brightest in that particular way, the people yeah. who are brightest in an academic way, from whatever background, um, should, so far as possible, have the opportunity to go to you know, rigorous, uh, you know, academically based universities, which many of our universities have ceased to be, you know, as part of the sort of general law of diminishing returns. But yeah, it, it is something that's often, you know, oh well, it's all it's fine for you. You went to a Russell Group University. Your children went to Russell Group Universities. You're yeah. kicking away the ladder. Well, I mean, I, I don't want to kick away the ladder. I, I want the system to fit the great range of aptitudes and abilities of the of the British population. Mm. And actually, one of the problems with the expansion of higher education is that it is, I mean, the study of social mobility is notoriously difficult and complex and no one knows or, or you know, it's very difficult to, to make uh, confident assertions about what's been happening to social mobility. But one of the, 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 the famous report on social mobility that came out in 2005, LSE academics, 
saying there had been a, a fall between the cohort of 1958 and the cohort of 1970. There had been quite a sharp fall in mobility, although actually if you looked at it, mobility was actually still surprisingly high, much higher than mm. most people would think between the different quartiles or quintiles, I think it was, of, of income. It was, I think, father-son income. But what one of the reasons what for the decline, they argued, um, I mean, that they have been challenged by other people, was precisely because uh, higher education had been so monopolized by the middle and upper middle class. And I think that has that continued with the great expansion post-92 when all the polytechnics became universities. So a lot of the academics who I argue with about this, you know, obviously have their vested interest. You know, they are academics. Yeah. Um, they And their main, they tend to be progressive. They, so they want to feel that the expansion of higher education has has been a good thing. But I think it's actually, I think they're in rather a difficult position. I think it's very difficult to to show that there has been any positive impact on the economy with uh, thanks to the enormous expansion of higher education. I mean, you know, the last 15 or 20 years, admittedly, um, it's been punctured by the financial crisis, uh, austerity, and now COVID. But this has not been a boom period for economic growth or in- income growth. It's not been a boom period for for innovation. It's not. Mm-hmm. It's, it's been the opposite of a boom period for productivity. Some people indeed argue that there is a relationship between the expansion of higher education and, and more people doing sort of, sort of information shuffling jobs of various kinds, and that this helps to explain the, the decline in productivity. I mean, I, I don't have a strong view about that, but um, it's certainly very hard to argue that it's had a big economic benefit. And to the extent that social mobility has, social mobility tends to be a bit higher than most people imagine. It had, didn't fall off a cliff, as that uh, LSE paper was interpreted as saying, but it, it's not the result of universities um, to the extent that social mobility has, uh, whatever degree of it we have, um, it's mainly, it, it happens mainly because changes to the structure of the economy. Mm. Um, I mean, there was, a, there, was a great, there was a great demand for more graduates in the, in the 70s, 80s, 90s, and and you know I, I think you know an expansion of the higher education system was then sensible. Um, it was it was a good idea. We had the the growth of the knowledge economy. You had the you know the growth of IT. You had all sorts of um, you know the, the economy wanted more academically mm. trained young people, and the structure of the economy was changing. You know manual jobs were disappearing, and more more white collar jobs, and indeed sort of information manipulation jobs were being created in the offices. You know, and, and of course, you know, you had computer science developing and, and new disciplines like that. So there, there was a, there was a big demand. It was perfectly rational then, uh, but I mean, but that was also the main reason for social mobility. Mm. The system demanded more better trained people. They didn't all have to go to universities. Yeah. Um, there are lots of countries where they didn't. Switzerland, for example, they you know many people went to much more vocational to technical type colleges. People going to to conventional academic sort of three four year academic full-time university courses in, in Switzerland remained quite small. I mean, I think remains to this day, you know, in the sort of 25% or something. But, I mean, Switzerland is not notice, noticeably less successful economically or, or or less socially mobile than the UK. So it's not – so universities are often, often claim credit for the social mobility, which is actually simply a function of the changing structure of the economy. 
Are you looking for the perfect gift for the pro-freedom, anti-woke person in your life? Then look no further than the Spiked Shop. You can now get your favourite Spiked slogan on a t-shirt, hoodie, tote bag or mug, including ban nothing, question everything, love Europe, hate the EU and cancel cancel culture. And if you're a Spike supporter, you get a 15% discount on everything in the shop. Just go to spiked-online.com slash shop to browse our items and make your purchases. That's spiked-online.com slash shop. You've touched there in some of those comments on something that I think is quite important, which is, I don't know if you've had this experience, but whenever I've criticized the cult of the expert, which is, uh, you know, the idea that... um, experts ought to have a greater influence on political life than ordinary people or you know anyone who talks about the dominance of a cognitive elite you will instantly be denounced as being anti-intellectual you know Mm, what's your mm. problem with clever people what's your Mm. problem with expertise of course i have no problem at all with expertise i I love experts especially if i need an operation or if someone needs to fix my ipad that's great i love those people they're Mm -hmm. wonderful but the but what what's striking is that the things that you describe in your book and the rise of this I suppose, smart set, to use an old-fashioned term, um, it coexists with a devaluation of the genuine pursuit of knowledge and the kind of role that universities used to play, which were to be citadels of knowledge, intellectual experimentation, breaking boundaries to a certain extent, really, you know, spending a long period of your life thinking about the world and talking about the world. And what's so striking about this new elite is that they're the clever ones, and some of them are very clever. That's absolutely true. But they have, as well as overseeing a change in how we value different working communities in the country, mm. they've also overseen a hollowing out of the university itself. Um, and you can see that in everything from, you know, the very utilitarian view of education, the way in which students are now seen largely as customers. You you pay your price, you get your product, and it will boost your life to this percentage and so on. Or even things like cancel culture and the censorship of controversial speakers and controversial ideas. So do you think that makes sense? I mean, it seems contradictory that these people who who celebrate cleverness and, and it, uh, the knowledge economy, it seems mm. contradictory that they would also have overseen a devaluation of true the true pursuit of knowledge. But actually, there's a logic there, isn't it? Because what we're talking about when we talk about things like the knowledge economy is something a little bit narrow in comparison to what universities would have done in the past. No, I, th- I think that's right. I mean, I don't talk a huge amount about the kind of wokeness problem in universities, but mm. I think there probably is a relationship between, well, it, it's related to the to the expansion of universities. And as you say, the, the universities becoming a, a sort of production line and losing the sort of true spirit of, I mean, I, I think it probably still is true of some elite places oxford and cambridge and imperial and one or two of the london universities perhaps still have some of that uh, you know real spirit of um, intellectual inquiry but there's bound to be diminishing returns i mean mm. you know uh, unless one is to assume that the whole sort of you know bell curve as it were of kind of you know of human intellectual ability has been transformed in recent times and there is this thing called the flynn effect which does say that actually iq levels have been rising although that, that effect may have worn off now that you actually just need to be a bit smarter to survive at all in a, in a kind of modern, complex industrial society. 
But assuming the bell curve hasn't really changed that much, I mean, obviously we're shifting down the bell curve when we expand university entrance. You know, you need, I mean, you know, anybody who wants to these days can effectively go to a university. Mm. Um, you know, you don't have to be intellectually able, but you're still, all the incentives are still pushing you towards university, even if you're not intellectually curious or academically able. You know, that's what your teachers are saying. That's what your parents are probably saying, at least until recently. I and mean, we have we'll come on to this, but and we have seen a very, very welcome shift, actually, just, just in the last couple of years. I think partly to do with well, a combination of government changing its rhetoric and people um, seeing the disappointing outcomes of these unavoidable diminishing returns. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, what's, mm-hmm. you know, you're seeing it in the... You know, sort of graduate income premium. You know, it used to be really significant. It remains really significant for for people at at truly elite universities. But in, at the run of the mill universities, it's declined to, to to almost nothing in many cases, particularly for young men. But of course, it's bound to change. And 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 this is one of the things I object to. I mean, obviously, we need you know, in a sophisticated modern world, you know, we need various forms of post school education. I mean, that that you know, most people will require some kind of often quite intense learning period after they leave conventional secondary school. And a, a probably a relatively small proportion of people who are really intellectually able are going and, and should continue to go to really rigorous institutions of higher education. But there's a whole panoply of different kinds of um, post-school education and training opportunities that people ought to be encouraged to take and increasingly now are being encouraged to take i think partly because of this the the missing middle that i referred to right at the beginning i mean you know we have a very very poor you know we're right at the bottom of the league table in terms of technical qualifications uh in in the uk uh, as a result of which obviously returns to those jobs are, are, are increasing rapidly so they're becoming much more attractive to people but it's this narrow it's that that we massified higher education and 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 i think we're a bit of an international outlier in this in this respect we massified higher education along the lines of elite higher education yeah so and this is one of the problems that everybody everybody's pushed into this uh, kind of academic factory but not, not doing things that might be appropriate to them i don't know doing a, a kind of six month or one year software course or coding course or something and then going out to work working for five or ten years and then perhaps if you are really interested in knowing what lies behind the stuff you've been doing you know go and do a computer science degree you know in your late 20s or early 30s when, when you're when you'd get far more out of it mm-hmm. you know you, you'd have the you'd have an understanding of of some aspects of it already and and you'd be able to sort of dig deeper but as it is we've shoved everybody you know so mature students have fallen off a cliff partly because of the whole the funding regime so everybody goes at 18 19 and they all go to three or four year institutions where invariably 75 80% are are residential universities and they're all doing abstract academic courses you know even if you're doing a construction management degree you know you'll spend a lot of time doing doing courses on accountancy and and general business studies and things like that whereas in the old days um, you know you'd have you'd have done most of it probably on site so i mean we're just training people in inadequate way or in yeah. inappropriate ways i mean at least at least once you sort of get out of the the real sort of cognitive elite students at the elite universities and in other countries you have a much greater variety of, of post school education um, so i think that's the problem it's not that it's not that um, people shouldn't be 
being trained and, and educated after school in different disciplines, but they shouldn't all be going into the same sort of model, essentially the kind of Oxbridge model. And, and this is now changing. I mean, this is one of the, the good news <laughs> that I have to bring to you <laughs> is that people have, have, have finally seen through this. And, it, and it's partly just a kind of economic law of diminishing returns, like, like I mentioned. I mean, the, 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 the graduate income premium has collapsed for people in, um, in kind of lower level institutions of higher education. And you're, you're now getting, um, uh, like I say, we've reached peak head. There simply isn't the demand yeah. out there. There isn't the demand from employers. But we're in a sort of transitional period because until recently, more and more jobs were becoming graduate only. It's just one of the, one of the incentives for people to get a degree, even if they didn't really fancy it. If 40% of all jobs in the economy, and, and uh, including all the best professional jobs, are graduate only, then you don't really have very much choice, you know, if yeah. you're ambitious and want to achieve in your life. Um, so, so that kind of that end of it needs to change as well. But we are seeing, you know, th- there is a sense that we've reached peak head. Employers are no longer demanding it. But the, I mean, if you look at the, the stats for the professional and man- managerial class, upper and lower, you know, the sort of top professional class in in the country. You know, which is obviously overwhelmingly graduates. It's what universities are sort of churning people out for. The numbers have barely budged in the last 20 years. I mean, in, in the year 2000, the proportion of the adult working population in that category was 35%, perhaps surprisingly high, 35%. There's a kind of higher bit and a lower bit. So just over a third of the workforce were, were in the professional and managerial class, higher or lower. The figure for last year was 37%. It's gone up right. two percentage points <laughs> in that time. And we now have a whole generation of uh, disappointed students. Mm. And we have a generation of disappointed students with £60,000 yeah. of student debt, most of which will be handed straight back to the taxpayer because they're never going to get jobs that will pay consistently over the twenty-seven grand or whatever it is. And we have a lot of very frustrated people. So, so this is the double whammy of the overinvestment in higher education as a symbol of the sort of the, the overdominance of the head and the interest of the head you know the, the, you know in my head hand heart formulation that the, the head which has run politics completely taken over the labor party I mean, one of the big uh, we can yeah. talk about the politics of this yeah. as well uh, i mean the, the labor party is a liberal graduate party it has been now yeah. for 25 years but you know, one of the interests of of the, you know, the, to the extent one can sort of talk loosely, at least about the kind of values and interests of of this cognitive class overlaps a bit with my you know so called anywheres is as I mentioned earlier, it's kind of openness, autonomy, and well, you know, one of the policy ideas that they all agree on is, of course, that everybody should be like them and go to university. I mean, it's a, <laughs> you know, I mean, people accuse you and me of sort of kicking away the ladder when we say. Mm. We should have fewer people. Well, I, my response to that is partly, well, you're just narcissistic because you want everyone mm. to be like you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, on on that very point, um, you talk there about how we are training people badly, and there is that diminishing return, and there will come a, there will come a breaking point if it hasn't come already. Um, and uh, but I want to take it on now a bit to the to the politics of this and mm. to the political manifestations of this new situation that you're describing. And as you say, there is crossover between this book, Head, Hand, Heart, and your book, The Road to Somewhere, The New Tribes Shaping British Politics. Well, I think I think it has a new subtitle in subsequent editions. But anyway, yeah. mm. your book on the tribes, The Road to Somewhere, 
Um, and one of the things you talk about is that one of the one of the clear divides between the different tribes in society, particularly between the somewheres and the anywheres, is in relation to education. It is in relation to the question of did you go to university or did you not go to university? And if you look at polls over recent years in terms of how people vote, there are very clear dividing lines, firstly, between generations. Younger people and older people now vote very differently. We saw that in relation to Brexit. We saw it in relation to recent general elections. Older people more likely to vote conservative, young people more likely to vote Labour. And then if you look at whether someone is a graduate or, or simply left school at 16, the way they vote will be very different. So and and of course, one thing that defines the older generation, people who are over 60 or over 65, is it's very unlikely they went to university. Very few people went to university um, back in the day. So how do you explain that? Because I, over the past five years of Brexit mayhem, I had numerous discussions with people in the media and elsewhere where they would say the reason, for, I mean, they would openly say the reason for this educational divide in political life is that people who are well-educated understand the world better. That's why they're more likely to vote for the Labour Party. That's why they're more likely to vote Remain. They're more caring. They understand things better and uneducated people don't. But do you think there's something, actually something very different happening, which is that universities have become not simply holding pens or, or places that badly train the next generation, but also institutions in which the values of this new cognitive elite are transmitted to younger people, not in a conspiratorial way. It's not as if they got together mm. and said, let's mm. fill them with all this, all these beliefs that we hold. But uh, over time, as these people have clubbed together in that part of the world, it's also become a zone in which they communicate their ideology, they develop their own in speak, in language, the way in mm. which they understand the world. And then that has an impact on political life outside of the university too. Yes, I think all of that is true and perhaps unavoidable. I mean, one of the kind of paradoxes, though, is is that um, I mean, there are some people who have been very much in favour of the expansion of higher education. Indeed, one person in particular I'm thinking of, David Soskis, who was very much involved with Tony Blair, Tony Blair's government in the original decision to go for a 50% target for higher education at the end of the 90s. And I, I know David, he's, he's, a, he's a good man. He's a very clever academic, and he's been involved in a lot of these decisions. He argues, I quote him actually in my book, he argues that probably the most important thing about university is not so much what you learn, which is just as well, because there are lots of studies that show, you know, outside of a few things like medicine, you know, university students don't actually learn anything <laughs> very much. He says that more important than that is, you know, the three or four years you spend mixing yeah. with people who are often very different to you from different social class backgrounds or ethnic backgrounds and, and learning to learning political skills, how to organize a meeting, how to whatever. Uh, there's probably already a selection effect. The kind of kids that go to university tend to be a bit more liberal anyway than than the average. And actually, there is some evidence in psychology that that cleverer. I can't remember which way, which where, where the sort of causality goes, but so cleverer people tend to be more open mm. and you know, tend to ha tend mm. to be more liberal. Actually, <laughs> and I think that was true. And I think even allowing for the selection effects that people who went to university tended to be better off, healthier, um, better educated already than the average. Nonetheless, there was a positive effect of, of that sort of university boarding experience. 
in, in, in terms of, you know, creating more liberal minded people. And yet, where have we ended up? You know, mm. we've ended up with, you know, you know, universities sort of leading the charge towards mm. divisiveness and tribalism and identity politics and, and, and all of that. And I mean, it may be that that's a sort of passing fad and we'll sort of come through it. So I, I'm, I'm not quite sure how I explain that. I mean, it, it may be lots of kids who are actually in the wrong place. I mean, you know, mm. who, who are, who are struggling with their studies. And therefore, end up sort of putting their energy into in, into other things while while they're at university. But yeah, no, I mean, I, th- I think the whole the whole kind of expert thing. Yeah, I, I mean, obviously, you know, educated people are better just at r- rationalising their own views. They're more mm. articulate than ordinary <laughs> people, and they're better at selecting the evidence to support views which are also derived essentially from their underlying values they they don't neutrally survey the evidence on leave or remain you know their 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 values their gut instincts just like with ordinary people tell them what to believe and then they go and find the evidence to to support it and they tend to be a bit better at that than ordinary people because they know where to go and look for it spike does publishing more than ever Articles, interviews, book reviews, long reads, podcasts. Every week, Spiked is packed with brilliant content on the big issues and big themes of our time. And now there's a really simple way for you to keep yourself in the loop on everything that we publish by signing up to our daily newsletter. In the daily newsletter, you will receive a roundup of everything we publish that day, plus some exclusive commentary from the Spiked team. What's not to like? So stay on top of everything Spike produces by signing up for our daily newsletter today. Just go to www.spiked-online.com slash newsletters. In relation to that um, section of society and the impact that the graduate takeover or the, or, or, mm. or the dominance of this new elite, the impact that it's had. You mentioned earlier the Labour Party, and I want to ask you a couple of questions about the Labour Party or what's happened to the left, as we would traditionally mm. have understood it. You're often described as someone who has made a sharp rightward turn, you know, because you have over the years um, criticised open borders, criticised the Remain attempts to prevent the vote for Brexit, mm. and criticised other aspects of uh, political life, which apparently makes you a fascist, essentially. That's what they say. Um, obviously, it's complete nonsense. But I, I want to talk to you about Labour and the left and what's happened there. Because as you said earlier, uh, Labour has become a head party, which is ironic in many ways, because it was the party that was founded in many ways to be the party of the hands, the people who work with their hands, the people who worked hard for a living and had insufficient representation in political life. Uh, so that's been a radical transformation. And one point that you've made is that Jeremy Corbyn, under Jeremy Corbyn, possibly ironically, the anywhere nature of the Labour Party actually intensified. So, you know, what we were often told by Corbyn and some of his supporters is that they would have returned Labour to its older values, they would have made it a, a more traditional left-wing party, not like the Blairite machine and so on. But in fact, the membership under Corbyn became even more middle class than it had been under Blair. And the anywhere tendencies, that sense of a kind of openness, a, a, a suspicion of community, a suspicion of borders, mm. a suspicion of working class values to a certain extent, those things kind of intensified. So what's your diagnosis of the Labour Party right now? Because it seems to me that 
the great white hope of Keir Starmer, if anything, could further intensify those problems that you and others have talked about in relation to Labour's loss of connection with rooted communities and working class communities? Yeah, I mean, I think this goes back a, a long way. And it's it's a factor across all developed countries, essentially the takeover of the main party of the left by by the graduate class, and most importantly, the interests and priorities of the graduate class, yeah. which are very much at odds with kind of you know middle Britain or middle France or middle Germany, let alone working class Britain, France mm. or Germany. And obviously, you've always had that in the past. I mean, you know, political leaders are often a sort of, uh, for want of a better term, ahead of the general population. But uh, one of the things also happened in recent decades is we've actually become much more democratic as societies. I mean, the, the sort of residue of deference and and uh, deference to not so much kind of social class, but the, the, the deference to authority has been been weakened, I mean, for mm. both good and ill. And I think that the parties of the left have, as I say, become overwhelmingly graduate-dominated amongst their activists, their MPs, their you know, cabinet ministers, They've all, you know, whatever their social class background, they've all had a relatively similar, relatively homogeneous experience. And I think that's weakened them uh, as a political force. The two main political parties have swapped in this respect, actually. Mm. (laughs) You know, university used to be for rich people, you know, know, before the Second World War and even some time after it. So the Tory party would have many more graduates than the Labour Party. And that's that switch. Well, both parties Mm. are now overwhelmingly graduate. But actually, one of the advantages to the Tory party, I think, amongst its uh, its membership is less graduate dominated. And uh, absurd though it seems, that makes you kind of, that gives you some confidence in them. <laughs> that actually, <laughs> they're actually sort of closer to the pulse of the country because they mm. haven't gone through this, you know, the politicization and liberalizing effect, that, particularly if you're doing a humanities degree or a social sciences degree, a university invariably uh, produces. So, I mean, it's an old story. I mean, you know, the, the graduate take, the liberal graduate takeover of the left throughout the world, really, and certainly throughout the developed world, you know, it's, it's something that's been happening for 30 years. It's sort of come to fruition more. And we've seen it very, you know, very clearly in the policy priorities of, of parties of the left, which just a couple of examples from the new Labour years. I mean, first of all, the 50% target for universities. And, and secondly, three or four years later, the decision to open our labor market to the former communist countries seven years before we had to no other big european country did that and i think you know that they were two very good examples of of how the main party of the center left had completely cut itself off really from Mm -hmm. from mainstream britain but i think there's also a a more recent phenomenon and and you might say this lies behind things like the sort of bernie sanders movement in america perhaps in a way that kind of corbynistas here possibly even blm to some extent is the frustration felt by a generation, a newer generation of students, you know, often not from privileged backgrounds, first in their family to go to university. I mean, that is increasingly true. I mean, when, when higher education is expanding at the speed it, it has been in recent times, almost everybody is the first in their family mm. to go to university. <laughs> but the frustration felt by those people, you know, they feel they've done the right thing, you know, they've worked hard, they've passed their exams, they've gone to college, they come out of college, and instead of the kind of high-status professional occupation they've been led to expect, they're working some boring back-office job on twenty-two grand. You know, if you're a young black kid, you can you, you you might blame that on racism. Perhaps racism might have something to do with it, but I think it may also be a big factor. Is that we have simply overexpanded 
the graduate class for graduate jobs that are not there. One third of people leaving university now do not go into graduate jobs. And the definition of a graduate job is pretty elastic, by the way. (laughs) And I think, you know, so we're screwing the system at both ends. We're creating, you know, a a kind of lumpen intelligentsia who are are disappointed because they're not getting the, the status that they think they deserve. You say you've got a kind of angry group there. And meanwhile, you know, we don't have enough technicians to deal with the vaccine. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so on. I mean, uh, so we've got to readjust and we are readjusting, actually. I mean, like I said a bit earlier, I mean, if you look at, and there have been some really encouraging opinion polls recently, uh, which show that parents now would prefer their child to do a vocational qualification than go to university. I mean, there's a diminishing, people have noticed the diminishing returns and they're responding to it. The kids themselves still tend to want to go, but mm. who wouldn't want to go, particularly if the taxpayer is still ultimately paying, who wouldn't want to go you know, and have fun for three years away from mm. your parents and, and some boring suburb or small town that you live in? I mean, there are, well, not everybody does want to do that, but there are, there are a lot of people that do want to, you know, particularly when you're 18, 19, you want to spread your wings and and one of the things that I've been thinking about recently, um, although I haven't really got very far with it, is that that is that is something quite valuable, even though in the context of the university, it often leads to the sort of empty radicalism mm. that we were just talking mm. about. But then actually, why why couldn't people doing apprenticeships or doing mm. other forms of sort of sub-degree qualification also have that opportunity? You know, with the internet, everything is possible in a way. You could easily organize, well, you're going to have universities, I hope, with lots of halls of residence. This, by the way, is one of the reasons also, of course, that's been what, that's been driving the expansion of higher education is the self-interest of the universities themselves. You know, these are economic institutions as well as cultural institutions. They expand, they become richer for every every student bum on every seat. And not only that, they, they also now have very big student accommodation estates that they need to fill. No, but 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 the, there's no reason why they couldn't be filled also with residential apprenticeships. You know, mm. somebody coming from Stoke to I don't know Bristol to do an apprenticeship, and then through the internet you could sort of have have ways of of uh, of allowing every everybody who is doing a kind of a residential apprenticeship in a certain area to contact each other. So you would get that same sort of mix. You know, it's one of the, one of the good things about universities still is that they are great mixes. Mm. I mean, you know, this is with some of the crazy politics there. It's easy to overlook that, but it is often, particularly, you know, in parts of the country that are quite ethnically segregated, it'll often be when they go to college, say that, you know, young Pakistanis or Bangladeshis from Bradford, you know, will meet and and befriend white people for the first time and mm-hmm. vice versa. So I think that sort of spirit of being, you know, the opportunity to leave home and, and, and mix with your peer group and so on, it, it is a valuable thing. And I think, and I think that, I think there ought to be ways in which that experience can apply to everybody without pushing everybody into this sort of sausage machine of the of the modern higher education system. On that point about the readjustment taking place and the fact that more people are saying, why go to university? Why do this? And and the fact that as you described, we've we're reaching peak head, there isn't a huge or there is certainly is not a growing demand for uh, graduates uh, to fill certain roles. You know, we've we've reached a kind of uh, a, a certain peak. I wanted to ask you: Am I am I detecting a note of optimism there? Because mm. uh, in terms mm. of because what I was thinking recently is the question of how difficult if if a, if a readjustment is taking place, how difficult this will 
prove to be and possibly how conf- how conflictual mm. it will prove to be. So one example is you described very well the younger the young graduates who are coming out of university who realize they've been sold a bit of a pup, you know, they're not going to get the fantastic job they might thought they will have got. They're expressing that frustration through BLM, other kinds of movements and so on. But what strikes me about that kind of um, tension in society is that these, this section of society often lacks the political tools to clearly express their frustrations or, or even to, to discover who to target, who's to blame, what is the, what are the structures that are to blame for the predicament they find themselves in. So for example, they will often fall into boomer bashing, you know, it's old people's mm. fault. And if you look at the way in which at the moment, for example, lots of radical graduates around the kind of Labour Party and the Corbynista fringes, they're blaming pensioner northern homeowners, you know, these these greedy people hogging all this capital, making life difficult for us. And I wonder if identity politics and the uh, the the tribes that you have written mm. about quite a lot over the past few years i wonder if that that means that this readjustment this recognition that the promises of the past few decades are not going to come to much good does the embrace of identity politics those tribal tensions those difficulties between different sections of society does that mean that that readjustment is going to take a, a conflictual form and essentially an anywhere versus somewhere form. So the anywheres will actually entrench themselves rather than asking questions about mm. how they ended up as graduates with not very good jobs. I mean, I, I don't really know is the obvious <laughs> answer to that. But I mean, just bouncing off what you said, I mean, I, I am a, I am an optimist. I mean, I think Peakhead has percolated down. I mean, not so much to the HE sector itself. It's on automatic pilot. And because of the pandemic this year, there'll probably be more more young kids from the UK going to university than ever before. But the political class has been to change, or at least the Tory part of it. So Labour is sort of stuck being the party of higher education now in some mm. ways, as as the Tories become the party of further education. You know, and although it is true, broadly speaking, that one of the big mistakes about the expansion of higher education is that it's as if Tony Blair hadn't realized that we don't have an alternative you know, for, for the 50% that weren't going to college. I mean, th- these things didn't matter when only 10 or 15% of the, mm. the population went to university. You know, 10% of your class or school went to university and you didn't. Well, who cares? You went, you know, you left school and went to work in a local factory or office. It was fine. When 50% go and you don't, it's a completely different psychological ball yeah. game, which nobody in the Labour leadership seemed to have any empathy towards mm. um, and perhaps because none of them were in that other 50 percent, and their children weren't i mean it was mm. you know uh, you know it was i think a very good example of why we want actually a, a a diverse political class with people from a much bigger range of backgrounds than we've had in recent years that those mistakes might have been avoided but i think we are now pulling back from that um you, you're seeing it in the opinion polls at least from from you know parents uh, you know the, the facts are coming in you know too many mm. kids are not getting the jobs they expected. The graduate premium is disappearing. And I think the pandemic will also have contributed to this. You know, it's raised the status of, of heart jobs. Of course, many of those heart jobs still require uh, undergraduate degrees. You know, to be a nurse now, you require a degree. Well, there are, it's true, there are other ways in. It. And indeed, one of the, one of the things I would advocate very strongly is that we should reduce, if not abolish, 
the number of jobs that are graduate only. And you're starting to see that too from you know some of the smartest institutions, some of those originally accountancy now sort of consultancy firms in the city, you know, people like you know, what are they called? Ernst and Young and mm. PwC and so on. You know, they are starting to push the the apprenticeship route much more. You know, apprenticeships are cool for the first time in in, in many generations. And I think, you know, you're seeing perhaps particularly with, you know, sort of privileged kids, privileged kids who are not particularly intellectual or, uh, or academic, you know, are sort of thinking, well, you know, why should I go to some second rate university when I could, you know, I could set up a little company, you know, this sort of entrepreneurial spirit. I, I can become a artisanal cheese maker in Hackney, <laughs> you know, cause, you know, daddy can lend me 30 grand or whatever it is. Um, and, I, and I think that's a good thing too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> often it is the kind of, you know, it is the rich and affluent often set trends, you know, and, and if they, if they're starting to see, uh, obviously not that, you know, there are some of them who will be very intellectual and, and very academically inclined, but those that aren't are not feeling as they have been over the last 30 or 40 years, feeling they kind of had to go to university because that's what everybody did. But they're now starting to think, actually, it's a bit cooler not to go to university. So I, I think I think that all of that will happen. We're seeing more applications for nursing courses as a result of the pandemic, I think, you know, which I think is a, is a, is a good thing. You know, and I, I think it has, you know, it has created, despite all the the cock ups and the and, and the and the divisiveness and so on, it's I think it has created a sort of sense of national solidarity in in many ways that the politics I hope can build on. And I think we are going to see, you know, AI. I mean, you know, I, I'm I'm talking about peak head is already upon us, and this is even before the arrival of AI, at least at you mm. know, large scale AI. And AI is going for precisely the sort of middling and lower cognitive jobs, yeah. the, kind of the backroom jobs in law and accountancy and so on, that uh, the kind of expanded university sector has been churning people out for. Yeah. So I think, you know, we will willy nilly sort of go back to a much smaller, much more intellectually, but I hope not socially elitist, rigorous academic university sector with then a, a much greater variety of of vocational type courses, full time, part time for you know for, for capable, able people who 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 are not attracted to the academic route. Although, and, and I also think, I mean, as you were implying, you know, that, that universities should also be there for people who want to kind of take a break um, mm. when they're a bit older. I mean, this you know we vastly overspend overinvest in 18 19 year olds going into higher education many of whom are simply not mature enough or interested enough to take ex- to take advantage of it whereas when they're 30 or 35 or 40 or even when they're retired you know might love to do a, you know a, and then just learning for its own sake you know just go and go and read george eliot or learn about sanskrit or byzantine or you know just something <laughs> for the pure joy of of learning about something that that's not being anti-intellectual yeah absolutely okay well i have one more final question Mm. for you which is in relation to something you've just touched on there so maybe you feel you've already answered it but in relation to the covid pandemic i wanted to ask you what you think the longer term impact of that will be particularly in in relation to your discussion and your theory around um, head hand mm. heart because the most striking thing about the pandemic uh, and people have commented on this is the fact that we we saw pretty well who is essential to society and who is not so essential to society mm. in terms mm. of work in terms of what people do so um many many people carried on working because society would not have functioned if they stopped working and that is not just 
the hands people, of course, but also cognitive people, doctors and mm. others. But significantly, lots of hand people, lots of heart people carried on working. They did not stay at home. They were not furloughed and society would not have worked without them. Refuse collectors, for example, shelf stackers in supermarkets, um, nurses and uh, all those uh, obvious examples. Uh, And there has been some discussion about, you know, this has been an eye opener for some people in terms of who keeps society running. But alongside that, there has been an intensification of some of the problems that you and I would be worried about in relation to identity politics. There was the BLM explosion. There were various attempts to interpret the pandemic as almost as being racist. It was, you know, it was impacting Mm. on certain communities more than others, which had a tendency to undercut um, mm. the national solidarity component, which was also there. So in the round, do you think there is something positive we can take from this negative experience in terms of the valuation we accord to different members of society and a, a, a sense of togetherness that has been mm. absent from British life over the past few decades? Uh, I definitely do, yes. I think you give a very good summary in some ways of the situation and there there are those negative caveats. This also seems to have reinforced some of the worst aspects of of uh, most divisive aspects of identity politics. And it's also important to say, of course, that you might say, you know, that the pandemic has been a sort of celebration of academic intelligence in some ways. Mm. You know, the, the, the very swift um, yeah. creation of these vaccines has, you know, it's been a great triumph for for you know, highly educated, scientifically, medically educated people cooperating, usually across national boundaries, to produce these vaccines. Although actually, um, the vaccine in 1957 was produced even quicker, so it's not unprecedented, <laughs> according to Neil Ferguson's book. But it's also important to remember. I mean, you know, that, that that's the kind of fact that people who are part of the great sort of you know uh, higher education sort of cognitive anywhere complex um to, to paraphrase eisenhower <laughs> would take that fact and say well look isn't this proof that mm. you know we need more experts we need to send more kids to university absolutely not mm. there's absolutely no correlation between the proportion of school leavers who go to university and the degree of brilliance of your academics in laboratories yeah. there really isn't any relation to talk any relationship at all indeed you know as i was saying earlier you know you you don't get better innovation when you send 50% of school leavers to university compared to 25% of school leavers yeah. obviously all of your brightest people are going to go to university anyway um, yeah. padding them out with a whole lot of people who probably shouldn't be there is not going to raise the level of innovation in your society quite possibly the opposite and nonetheless one has to acknowledge that this has been a great triumph for, for the, the medical part of the, of the university sector but at the same time as you say i mean i think it has it has been a communitarian moment i think it's been a this may well be sort of covid confirmation bias because it sort of confirms my own politics in a way, but it's been a sort of social democratic moment economically. I mean, the way that, you know, even a conservative government has just, you know, as in other countries, is, you know, we've we've underwritten people's livelihoods on an absolutely massive scale. I mean, so it's been a hugely social democratic sort of Keynesian moment. No one seems to worry very much any longer about um, controlling public spending. And it's also been quite a sort of socially conservative, small C conservative moment in that it's been, it's been very much a moment of the nation state. International institutions have not performed well and for communities to to kind of be aware of themselves again i mean you know just in my own little patch i mean 
you know, think of all those sort of thousands, tens of thousands of little WhatsApp groups that have sprung up so that people mm. can look after their elderly neighbours and so on. I mean, I've got to know, you know, a couple of old people, you know, who live in my street who I didn't know before, and and there are lots and lots of people who have who have done that. Uh, so I think there has has been a kind of a rediscovery of community and neighbourhood and 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 so on. And of course, we just become more aware. We've been reminded of our interdependence, really, mm. on, on on each other. And uh, you know, your point about key workers, key workers invariably not graduates. You know, people who stack shelves in supermarkets. We noticed them. You know, normally, you know, before the pandemic, we would we never noticed them. I mean, and we'll probably go back to not noticing them. But I think. It'll leave a little bit of a mark, I think. Mm. I and mean, I think there's some opinion polling evidence on this. It'll, it'll mean that we'll be more open to higher levels of minimum wages and so on, because many of those jobs are, are probably minimum wage or not much above the minimum wage. Yeah, and I, and I, and I think I think there will be some lasting effect from that. And I think the other good thing is that it, it, we've also a lot of people have sort of rediscovered domesticity, rediscovered the family. <laughs> I mean, you know, people like Alice Thompson who normally only write about women's issues in relation to competition with men in the professional sphere. And well, like Madeleine Bunting writes about this in her, her very good book about how modern feminism has in some ways been defined against sort of conventional views of care and family and so on, which is one of the problems with it. And I think the, the, the pandemic, obviously there have been some negative aspects too, you know, increase in domestic abuse and so on. But I think, you know, the kind of rediscovery of domesticity, people's lives slowing down a bit, you know, people, a lot of people I know talk about sort of getting to know their children again, mm. <laughs> because they've been forced to spend time with them. That has sometimes been a negative experience, but more often than not, and again, the polling suggests this, it's been, it's been a positive experience. So I think all, all in all, there's a, a sort of positive small C conservatism has, has emerged from the pandemic. I and mean, if you combine that with the shift that's now taking place on the en- ending of that sort of automatic belief that you know the, the, that it's the head that is the only route to a, to a satisfying life, we now have, we have a government that is now uh, you know Boris Johnson's actually made some really good speeches on this. I mean, no one ever reads speeches on training, but um, you know, and they, we really do now have in place the combination of the apprenticeship levy, which is mm-hmm. flawed in many ways, but it's there. Uh, the T levels, you know, an alternative form of, uh, of of kind of A level for for vocational jobs, and we now got the lifelong learning guarantee. And you know, anyone the state will pay anyone to to get a qualification, either academic or vocational, up to level three, the equivalent of A level. And they're, and they're also talking about allowing people to to use the student loan system, not just for academic degrees, but also for vocational qualification. There is now a framework, and there's rhetoric saying that these. I mean, we're never going to have complete parity. I mean, you know, the, the brightest people, you know, who do invent the drugs or design beautiful buildings, you know, will always be the people who go down the academic path. But for most of the ordinary people who are not uh, brilliant, uh, who go down the academic path, then they're often no more clever or able than people who don't go down the academic path. So amongst the great sort of mass of people, I think there can be a rebalancing and will be. And, and uh, when it, indeed it's happening right now. David Goodhart, thank you very much. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.